0: PART 18 OF THE CHRONICLES OF CRIME, VOLUME 1, BY CAPTAIN PELHAM. THIS LIBRIVOX RECORDING IS IN THE PUBLIC DOMAIN. BENJAMIN TAPNER, JOHN COBBY, JOHN HAMMOND, RICHARD MILLS, RICHARD MILLS THE YOUNGER, AND OTHERS. EXECUTED FOR MURDER. We do not recollect ever to have heard of a case exhibiting greater brutality on the part of the murderers towards their victim than this. The offenders were all smugglers, and the unfortunate objects of their crime were a Custom House officer and a shoemaker, named, respectively, William Galley and Daniel Chater. It would appear that a daring and very extensive robbery having been committed at the Custom House at Poole, Galley and Chater were sent to Stanstead in Sussex to give some information to Major Bateen, a magistrate in reference to the circumstance they did not however return to their homes and on inquiry it turned out that they had been brutally murdered the body of galley being traced by means of bloodhounds to be buried while that of chater was discovered at a distance of six miles in a well in harris's wood near lee in lady holt's park covered up with a quantity of stones wooden railings and earth at a special commission held in Chichester on the 16th of January 1749, the prisoners Benjamin Tapner, John Cobby, John Hammond, William Carter, Richard Mills the Elder, and Richard Mills the Younger, were indicted for the murder of Daniel Chater, the three first as principals, and the others as accessories before the fact, and William Jackson and William Carter were indicted for the murder of William Galley. From the evidence adduced the circumstances of this most horrid murder were proved, and it appeared that the two deceased persons having passed Havant on their road to Stanstead went to the new inn at Lee, where they met one Austin and his brother and brother-in-law, of whom they asked the road, and they conducted them to Rowland's Castle, where they said they might obtain better information. They went into the White Hart, and mrs Payne, the landlady, suspecting the object of their mission, sent for the prisoners Jackson and Carter, and they were soon after joined by some others of the gang after they had all been sitting together carter and chater called out and demanded to know where diamond one of those suspected of the robbery was chater replied that he was in custody and that he was going against his will to give evidence against him galley following them into the yard was knocked down by carter on his calling chater away and they then returned indoors the smugglers now pretended to be sorry for what had occurred, and desired Galley to drink some rum, and they persisted in plying him and Chater with liquor, until they were both intoxicated. They were then persuaded to lie down and sleep, and a letter to Major Bateen, of which they were the bearers, was taken from them, read, and destroyed. One John Royce, a smuggler, now came in, and Jackson and Carter told him the contents of the letter, and said that they had got the old rogue the shoemaker of Fordingbridge, who was going to inform against John Diamond, the shepherd, then in custody at Chichester. Here William Steele proposed to take them both to a well about two hundred yards from the house, and to murder and throw them in. But this was rejected, and after several propositions had been made as to the mode in which they should be disposed of, the scene of cruelty was commenced by Jackson, who, putting on his spurs, jumped upon the bed where they lay, and spurred their foreheads, and whipped them, so that they both got up bleeding. The smugglers then took them out of the house, and Mills swore he would shoot any one who followed or said anything of what had occurred. Meanwhile the rest put Galley and Chater on one horse, tied their legs under the horse's belly, and then tied the legs of both together. They now set forward, with the exception of Royce, who had no horse, and they had not gone above two hundred yards before Jackson called out, Whip em, cut em, slash em, damn em upon which all began to whip except Steele, who led the horse, the roads being very bad. They whipped them for half a mile till they came to Woodash, where they fell off, with their heads under the horse's belly, and their legs which were tied, appeared over the horse's back. Their tormentors soon set them upright again, and continued whipping them over the head, face, shoulders, etc., till they came to Dean, upwards of half a mile farther and here they both fell again as before, with their heads under the horse's belly, which were struck at every step by the horse's hooves. Upon placing them again in the saddle, the villains found them so weak that they could not sit, upon which they separated them, and put Gally before Steele, and Chater before little Sam, and then whipped Gally so severely that the lashes coming upon steel, at his desire they desisted. They then went to Harris's well, and threatened to throw Gally in but when he desired that they would put an end to his misery at once, no, said Jackson, if that's the case we have something more to say to you. And they thereupon put him on the horse again, and whipped him over the downs, until he was so weak that he fell off. They next laid him across the horse, and little Sam, getting up behind him, subjected him to such cruelty as made him groan with the most excruciating torments, and he fell off again. Being again put up astride, Richards got up behind him, but the poor man soon cried out, "'I fall, I fall!' and Richards pushed him, with a force, saying, "'Fall, and be damned!' The unhappy man then turned over and expired, and they threw the body over the horse and carried it off with them to the house of one Scardifield, who kept the red lion at rake. The landlord remarking the condition of Chater and Gally's body, the fellows told him that they had engaged with some officers, had lost their tea, and that some of them were wounded if not dead. This was sufficient, and Jackson and Carter carried Chater down to the house of the Elder Mills, where they chained him up in a turf-house. Their companions in the meantime drank gin and brandy at Scardifields, and it now being nearly dark they borrowed spades and a candle and lantern, and making him assist them in digging a hole they buried the body of the murdered officer. They then separated— but on the Thursday they met again with some more of their associates, including the prisoners Richard Mills and his two sons Richard and John, Thomas Stringer, Cobby, Tapner and Hammond, for the purpose of deliberating what should be done with their prisoner. It was soon unanimously resolved that he must be destroyed, and it was determined that they should take him to Harris's well and throw him in, as it was considered that the death would be most likely to cause him the greatest pain. During this time the wretched man was in a state of the utmost horror and misery, being visited occasionally by all his tormentors, who abused him and beat him violently. At last, when this determination had been arrived at, they all went, and Tapner, pulling out a clasp knife, ordered him on his knees, swearing that he would be his butcher. But being dissuaded from this, as being opposed to their plan to prolong the miseries of their prisoner, he contented himself with slashing the knife across his eyes, almost cutting them out and completely severing the gristle of his nose. They then placed him upon a horse, and all set out together for Harris's well, except Mills and his sons, they having no horses ready, and saying, in excuse, that there were enough without them to murder one man. All the way Tapner whipped him till the blood came, and then swore that if he bloodied the saddle he would torture him the more. When they were come within one hundred yards of the well Jackson and Carter stopped, saying to Tapner, "'Cobby, Stringer, Steele, and Hammond. "'Go on and do your duty on Chater, "'as we have ours upon Galley.' "'It was in the dead of the night "'that they brought their victim to the well, "'which was nearly thirty feet deep, but dry, "'and paled close round. "'And Tapner, having fastened a noose around his neck, "'they bade him get over the pales. "'He was going through a broken place, "'but though he was covered with blood and fainting "'with anguish of his wounds, "'they forced him to climb up, "'having the rope about his neck.' They then tied one end of the cord to the pails, and pushed him over the brink, but the rope being short, he hung no farther within it than his thighs, and leaning against the edge he hung above a quarter of an hour, and was not strangled. They then untied him, and threw him head foremost into the well. They tarried some time, and hearing him groan, they determined to go to one William Comley's, a gardener, to borrow a rope and ladder, saying they wanted to relieve one of their companions who had fallen into Harris's well. He said they might take them, but they could not manage the ladder in their confusion, it being a long one. They then returned to the well, and, still hearing him groan and fearful that the sound might lead to a discovery, the place being near the road, they threw upon him some of the rails and gate-posts fixed about the well, as well as some great stones, and then finding him silent they left him. Their next consultation was how to dispose of their horses, and they killed Galleys, which was grey, and taking his hide off cut it into small pieces, and hid them so as to prevent any discovery, but a bay horse that Chater had ridden on got from them. This being the evidence produced, the jury, after being out of court about a quarter of an hour, brought in a verdict of guilty against all the prisoners, whereupon the judge pronounced sentence on the convicts in the most pathetic address, representing the enormity of their crime, and exhorting them to make immediate preparation for the awful fate that awaited them, adding— Christian charity obliges me to tell you that your time in this world will be very short. The heinousness of this crime, of which these men had been convicted, rendering it necessary that their punishment should be exemplary, the judge ordered that they should be executed on the following day, and the sentence was accordingly carried into execution against all but Jackson, who died in prison on the evening that he was condemned. They were attended by two ministers, and all, except Mills and his son, who took no notice of each other, and thought themselves not guilty because they were not present at the finishing of the inhuman murder, showed great marks of penitence. Tapner and Carter gave good advice to the spectators, and desired diligence might be used to apprehend Richards, whom they charged as the cause of their being brought to this wretched end. Young Mills smiled several times at the executioner, who was a discharged Marine, and having ropes too short for some of them was puzzled to fit them old mills being forced to stand tiptoe to reach the halter desired that he might not be hanged by inches the two mills were so rejoiced at being told that they were not to be hanged in chains after execution that death seemed to excite them in no terror while jackson was so struck with horror at being measured for his irons that he soon expired they were hanged at Chichester, on the 18th of January, 1749, amidst such a concourse of spectators as is seldom seen on the occasion of a public execution. Carter was hung in chains near Rake, in Sussex, Tapner on Rooks Hill, near Chichester, and Cobb and Hammond, at Selsey Isle, on the beach where they sometimes landed their smuggled goods, and where they could be seen at a great distance east and west. Samuel Couchman and John Morgan "'Lieutenant of Marines, Thomas Knight, Carpenter, and others. "'Shot for mutiny. "'The Chesterfield Man-of-War, under the command of Captain O'Brien Dudley, "'was stationed off Cape Coast Castle, on the coast of Africa, "'when a dangerous mutiny broke out among the crew, "'of whom the above-named officers were the leaders.' They were charged on their trial with exciting and encouraging mutiny, and running away with His Majesty's ship Chesterfield, on the 10th day of October 1748, from the coast of Africa, leaving their captain, two lieutenants, with other officers, and some seamen on shore. It appeared, from the evidence adduced before the court-martial, by which the prisoners were tried, and which was presided over by Sir Edward Hawke, that on the 15th of October 1748, Captain Dudley, being on shore at Cape Coast Castle, sent off his barge to Lieutenant Couchman, ordering him to send the cutter with the boatswain of the ship, to see the tents struck, and to bring everything belonging to the ship on board that night. Couchman, however, directly ordered the barge to be hoisted in, and the boatswain to turn all hands on the quarter-deck, and then coming from his cabin with a drawn sword, said, Here I am, God damn me, and I will stand by you while I have a drop of blood in my body. He was accompanied by John Morgan, the second lieutenant of Marines, Thomas Knight the carpenter, his mate John Place, a principal actor, and about thirty seamen with cutlasses. They gave three huzzas and threw their hats overboard, damning old hats, and saying that they would soon get new. Couchman now sent for the boatswain to know if he would stand by him and go with him, but he replied, No, and said, For God's sake, sir, be ruled by reason, and consider what you are about.' Couchman threatened to put him in irons if he did not join in with him, but the postman told him he never would be in such piratical designs, and he was immediately ordered into custody, and two sentinels put over him. Couchman soon after sent for Gillam, the mate of the ship, but he also refusing to join him was put into custody with five or six others. They were confined, however, only five or six hours, for in the middle of the night after their confinement, Couchman sent for them into the great cabin, desired them to sit and drink punch and then dismissed them. The next day the boatswain was invited to dinner by the new commander, who began to rail against Captain Dudley, and proposed to him to sign a paper. He refused indignantly, and was immediately dismissed. When he quitted the great cabin he went to the gunner, who informed him that he had twenty pistols still at his disposal, and it was determined that an effort should be made that night to recover the ship from the mutineers. When evening drew on, the boatswain proceeded to sound the ship's company, and he soon found about thirty of the seamen, besides the mates, gunner's mates, and coxswain of the barge, ready to aid him. The boatswain took the command on himself, and the first step which he took was to get all the irons, or bilboes, on the forecastle. He then sent for the twenty pistols, which were all loaded. He next ordered three men upon the grand magazine, and two to the abaft, and the remainder, who had no pistols, to stay by the bilboes, and secure as many prisoners as he should send. This disposition being made, he went directly down on the deck, where he divided his small company into two parties, and one going down the main, and the other the fore-hatchway, they soon secured eleven or twelve of the ringleaders, and sent them up to the forecastle without the least noise. The two parties then joined, and went directly to the great cabin, where they secured Couchman and Morgan with the carpenter, whom they immediately confined in different parts of the vessel. The ship being thus secured, the captain again boarded her, and took the command of her, and on her return to England, the mutineers were brought to trial. The court-martial, having found them guilty of the crimes imputed to them, they were shot in the month of June 1749. The boatswain, Roger Winkit, was afterwards rewarded with three hundred pounds a year, as master attendant of Woolwich Dockyard. john mills executed for murder the case of this felon becomes remarkable from the fact of the criminal being the son of richard mills the elder whose ignominious fate we have just recorded it appears that he was engaged in the robbery of the custom-house but escaped and soon after his father brother and their accomplices were hanged he thought of going to bristol with a view of embarking for france and having hinted his intentions to some others they resolved to accompany him stopping at a house on the road they met with one Richard Hawkins, whom they asked to go with them, but the poor fellow hesitating, they put him on horseback behind Mills, and carried him to the Dog and Partridge, on Slendon Common, which was kept by John Reynolds. They had not been long in the house when complaint was made that two bags of tea had been stolen, and Hawkins was charged with the robbery. He steadily denied any knowledge of the affair, but they obliged him to pull off his clothes, and having stripped themselves they began to whip him with the most unrelenting barbarity and Curtis, one of the gang, said he did know of the robbery, and if he did not confess, he would whip him till he did, for he had whipped many a rogue, and washed his hands in his blood. The villains continued whipping the poor wretch till their breath was almost exhausted, when at length the unfortunate man mentioned something of his father and brother, on which Mills and Curtis said they would go and fetch them, but Hawkins expired soon after they had left the house. On their way back they met Winter, one of their companions, who informed them of this fact, when they dismissed the men whom they had compelled to accompany them, saying that they should be sent for when they were wanted. Their next anxiety was as to the mode in which they should dispose of the body, and it was proposed to throw it into a well in an adjacent park, but this being objected to, they carried it twelve miles, and having tied stones to it in order to sink it, they threw it into a pond in Parham Park, belonging to Sir Cecil Bishop." and in this place it lay more than two months before it was discovered mills was afterwards taken into custody on the information of pring an outlawed smuggler and being tried was convicted the country being at that time filled with smugglers a rescue was feared wherefore he was conducted to the place of execution by a guard of soldiers when there he prayed with the clergyman confessed that he had led a bad life acknowledged the murder of hawkins desired that all young people would take warning by his untimely end, and humbly implored the forgiveness of God. He was executed on Slendon Common on the 12th of August, 1749, and afterwards hung in chains on the same spot. Amy Hutchinson, Burnt for the Murder of Her Husband This malefactor was born of indigent parents in the Isle of Ely, and having received a poor education at the age of sixteen she attracted the attention of a young man, whose love she returned with equal affection. A father, being apprised of the connection, strictly charged his daughter to decline it, but there was no arguing against love. The intimacy continued till it became criminal. The young fellow, having soon grown tired of her, he went off to London, and she determined to revenge herself upon him for his infidelity, by marrying another suitor, named John Hutchinson, who had previously been disagreeable to her. The marriage accordingly took place, but her first admirer, happening to return from London, just as the newly-wedded pair were coming out of church, the bride was greatly affected at the recollection of former scenes, and the irrevocable ceremony which had now passed. Unable to love the man she had married, she doted to distraction on him she had lost, and only a few days after her marriage admitted him to his former intimacy with her. Hutchinson becoming jealous of his wife, a quarrel ensued, in consequence of which he beat her with great severity, but this producing no alteration in her conduct. He had recourse to drinking, with a view to avoid the pain of reflection on his situation. In the interim, his wife and the young fellow continued their guilty intercourse uninterrupted, but, considering the life of her husband as a bar to their happiness, it was resolved to remove him by poison. For this purpose the wife purchased a quantity of arsenic, and Mr. Hutchinson being afflicted with an ague, and wishing for something warm to drink, she put some arsenic in ale, of which he drank very plentifully, and then she left him, saying she would go and buy something for his dinner. Meeting her lover, she acquainted him with what had passed, on which he advised her to buy more poison, fearing the first might not be sufficient to operate, but its effects were fatal, and Hutchinson died about dinner-time on the same day. The deceased was buried on the following Sunday, and the next day the former lover renewed his visits, which occasioned the neighbours to talk very freely of the affair, the young widow was taken into custody on suspicion of having committed the murder. The body being exhumed, it was found that death had been caused by poison, and the prisoner was convicted and sentenced to death. She was strangled and burned at Ely, on the 7th of November, 1750, confessing the crime of which she had been found guilty." End of Part 18